Thank you. Thank you, and I hope that the activism, enterprise, and social change that is our title speaks exactly to those things. We're going to move from a man who, one of Favor's youth memories was the production possibility curve, to a woman who wrote a best-selling book about double-entry accounting. <laughs> so, Jane, Jane Gleason White um, was the author of Double Entry in 2011, but she's more recently written Six Capitals, The Revolution Capitalism Has to Have. And Double Entry um, won a literary award, as I say, so it's quite a feat to um, communicate across zones in that way. And we're delighted to have her here today to follow on from Richard. Thank you, Jane. Um, thank you so much, <coughs> Brahman and Michelle, for asking me to speak here today, and thank you all for coming. I think this is such an important gathering. I love that you um, highlighted the word gathering. <coughs> um, and thank you, Richard, for your very stimulating words. I, too, am a former student of Frank Stilwell, <laughs> um, but my PhD was in creative writing, which may account for the somewhat different approach I've... <laughs> I might, uh, uh, that I'm taking uh, to the question of what is the new economy. Uh, first of all, I would like to acknowledge the, tr the traditional custodians of this land, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, and all elders past and present in any Indigenous people here today. Um, as Brahman intimated, for the last eight years, I've been in the sewers of the global economy, and I'm back to tell the tale. I was trapped there from 2008 until last May, having followed a sign that said Renaissance Venice without reading the fine print. Very foolish. I thought I was headed for art and magic. Instead, I found the origins of capitalism and modern economics. No one had been down there for decades. I was all alone in the dusty bowels of Fisher Library. <laughs> so I followed my nose in the dark until I found some familiar markers. The Merchants of Venice, Josiah Wedgwood and British Manufacturing, Henry Ford, the Wall Street Crash, the Second World War and the United Nations, the global financial crisis, the environmental crisis, and that elusive catch-all called sustainability. I finally found my way out on Friday the 5th of May 2016, thank goodness, um, and much to my astonishment, I was on Wall Street in the offices of the New York Society of Certified Public Accountants. I was talking about accounting and sustainability with the head of a 21st century revolution in accounting, um, who is the international corporate governance guru, the South African Professor Mervyn King. So that was some surreal trip. And I learned three big things in the underworld um, on my travels with accountants. First, I discovered the mechanism that makes the whole global economy tick. It's not actually GDP, it's double entry bookkeeping. <laughs> that is the medieval accounting innovation that invented the category of capital which characterized and names, named today's global economic system. Most importantly, double entry also made possible the measurement of capital. It allows the calculation of increases and decreases in capital, that is, of profits and losses. With the advent of double entry bookkeeping in northern Italy around 1300, for the first time ever, 
merchants were able to gear their activities to the pursuit of profit, and so commerce was increasingly directed by the maximization of profit. Thus, double entry made possible the rule which governs capitalism, that is, profit maximization. This axiom was formalized in 1919 in a landmark case brought by the Dodge brothers against Henry Ford, when Ford wanted to spend some of his vast profits on new factories and employees, the Dodge brothers, who were Ford shareholders, wanted their money paid out in dividends instead. To get their money, they took Ford to court, and in its judgment, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled that the Ford Motor Company could not be run as a charity, and held that a corporation is organized primarily for the profit of its shareholders. And so a culture was created in which profit maximization became the singular intent of corporate activity. And this was famously summed up in 1970 by economist Milton Friedman in his essay emphatically titled, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits. Second, I learned that today, even capitalism's most ardent advocates on Wall Street believe that capitalism is broken. It's now widely understood that profit maximization does not serve the long-term interests of society and the planet. But every attempt to override this imperative meets with an accounting method which keeps the system defaulting back to the pursuit of short-term profit and its post-war national corollary GDP maximization. This has thrown the accounting profession into an existential crisis. The third thing I learned is that news of the work you've all been doing, along with all the other activists, thinkers, and visionaries around the world to empower what traditional economics calls externalities, that is, nature and society, is finally reaching the ears of those at the heartland of global finance. These people now realize that business needs society and nature. They realize, I mean amazingly, duh, that society and nature actually count and therefore must be counted. So they're attempting to find ways to count not just money, that is financial value, but also nature and society. The most comprehensive thinking being done in this area is by an organization called the International Integrated Reporting Council, which is chaired by that same government expert I was talking to on Wall Street last May, Professor Mervyn King. In December 2013, the International Integrated Reporting Council published a new accounting framework which attempts to bring together for the very first time three different spheres of value. First, the traditional financial value that we're all familiar with. Second, the environmental and social value measured by the Global Reporting Initiative, which I'll talk about in a minute. And third, the new value which Richard mentioned, which is brought by the network digital computer in the post-war era. So the new accounting framework brings together financial value with social and natural value, as well as the intangible value of the information age, hence integrated reporting. It expresses the new values in terms of six stores of wealth or capitals. They are, first, the familiar financial capital, a category first seen in Europe around 1300 in the double entry account books of the merchants of Northern Italy. Today, the measurement of financial capital underpins the global economy. 
Second, manufactured capital. This is the infrastructure uh, bequeathed to us by the industrial era, whose measurement was first developed in industrial Britain by manufacturing pioneers like Josiah Wedgwood from 1769. And third, intellectual capital, which is software and other products of the human mind, such as data, TV shows, and patents for new drugs. Fourth is human capital, otherwise known as geeks, and other people with fertile minds, that's all of you, uh, that's knowledge workers. The last two, social capital and natural capital, are bound up with the concept of sustainability. Their measurement was pioneered by social investors and environmental activists in Boston in response to the 1989 Exxon Valdez disaster. Effectively, they asked companies to practice an environmental and social ethic which required going beyond the profit-focused principle of US case law established in Dodge versus the Ford Motor Company in 1919. This eventually led in 2000 to the release by the Global Reporting Initiative of the world's first comprehensive guidelines for reporting on the social, environmental, and economic impacts of corporations. So the Integrated Reporting Framework, published in 2013, brings together in one framework these six different stores of wealth or capitals. They are financial, manufactured, intellectual, human, social, and natural capital. Its advocates believe that it can solve the intractable problems of our time, the fixation with short-term financial gain and the many social and environmental crises. Mervyn King told me that if integrated reporting is adopted by corporations around the world, then accountants will become, and I quote, the profession that enabled homo sapiens, human society, to move as a sustainable society into the 21st, 22nd century. Well, a big claim. <clears throat> this is early days for integrated reporting, so the jury is still out on its effectiveness. It seems to me that integrated reporting is a somewhat superficial solution, to say the least, given the number and enormity of problems it purports to solve. <laughs> but I've spoken to many people around the world in organizations from insurance companies to environmental groups and cultural studies departments in universities who are inspired by the integrated reporting framework because it provides a language that brings together values never previously connected. They believe that any attempt to bring the hard numbers people, finance teams, boards, chief financial officers, to the table with people who care about nature, society, the arts, and get them talking is culture changing, is actually revolutionary. They believe that integrated reporting can move sustainability and other so-called non-financial values from the basement where they currently languish to the top floor alongside the financials and give them a shared language with which to speak to each other. So I do think this is important. But while the integrated reporting revolution unfolds at what is actually breakneck speed for accounting, but feels glacial given the urgency of the problems it's trying to address, my attention is now focused on the entity integrated reporting seeks to govern. This entity is engaged in what I believe will be a battle of the century, the battle of the century. As things currently stand, this battle makes the fight between David and Goliath look like one between equals. On one side, we have a being of phenomenal force, 
a legal person invented to harness the power of collective monetary wealth. We're so enthralled to this particular wealth that we carefully measure and count it. We treat it with such care and reverence, worship it even, you'd be forgiven for believing it's our God. Certainly, its petulant mood, moods rule the global economy. On the other side, we have the entire actual wealth of the planet, all the vast variety of phenomena that constitute life on Earth. These are the ecosystems that bring forth humans and all other life and to which we return. We don't carefully measure and count this wealth. Most of us don't worship it. The entity with Olympian power is, of course, the corporation. The disenfranchised other who makes possible all life on Earth is the natural world, or as James Lovelock calls her, Gaia. I believe that one of the most urgent tasks of our time is to intervene in this staggering power inequality, to evolve the corporation and empower the natural world according to the rules of engagement we humans write, that is, via our legal codes. We need to rewrite the code like Neo does in The Matrix, which is my favorite film. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I found these codes are already being rewritten. People are already writing the laws that designate both legal personhood and the rights and responsibilities of that legal personhood. In 2006, in Philadelphia, three friends, Jay Cohen-Gilbert, Bart Houlihan, and Andrew Cassoy, founded an organization called B-Lab with the idea of creating a new kind of evolved corporation purpose-built for our times a corporation legally unable to operate for financial gain alone. They wanted to harness the potential of business to work legally unimpeded for a greater benefit than profit alone. They called the corporation they invented to do this good work the B Corporation or Benefit Corporation. B corporations must make a material contribution to society and the environment and are held accountable for doing so. To make benefit corporations legally possible in all 50 of the United States, B-Lab is asking state legislatures to amend their corporate charters so that companies can be incorporated with explicit social and environmental ends. To date, 31 US states have passed benefit corporation legislation and seven more are working on it. Speaking at the public ceremony for the passing of benefit corporation legislation in Delaware in 2013, which is the United States' biggest state for incorporation, so that was a massive event, New York investment analyst Albert Wenger hailed the arrival of the benefit corporation. He said, the critical challenge for capitalism today is not to make more stuff, but to work out how we can live in harmony with the environment and work out what we can do about disappearing jobs, income inequality, and providing better access to affordable, good quality education and healthcare. If benefit corporations had been around in 1919, the Dodge brothers would have lost their case against Henry Ford. I think benefit corporations are the sort of evolved corporation we need to work hand in hand with society and the natural world in the 21st century. Lawyer John Montgomery, who helped write the benefit corporation legislation for California, calls them corporations with conscience. While this rewriting of corporate being is happening across the United States and spreading around the world, 
including to Australia in 2014, another rewriting of being is taking place, that of nature. Extending legal personhood to nature was first seriously proposed in Western law by legal scholar Christopher D. Stone in 1972 in an influential article called Should Trees Have Standing Towards Legal Rights for Natural Objects? Here Stone challenged the legal precedent that trees are objects with no rights in law and argued instead that trees should be given legal rights. He argued that just as over the centuries we have extended legal rights to an increasing number of human beings, including slaves, women, children, and racial minorities, and granted legal personhood to various inanimate things like trusts, ships, nation states, and the ubiquitous corporation itself, so it is time to extend these rights of legal personhood to nature. In the ensuing decades, nature has been granted rights in the constitutions of Ecuador and Bolivia, and this decade, for the first time in Western law, a river became a legal person in New Zealand in September 2012. The law recognised that the river system itself has certain interests and values of its own and gives the river legal standing and an independent voice. I believe these are the two big legal and psychosocial shifts that are needed for our century. That is, the transplant of a conscience into the adolescent corporation and the empowerment of old mother nature, the natural world. And so we now need a new economic story to bring these two players together as companions with humans in a new millennium adventure that is both local and planetary, earthly. We need a new economic imaginary of the best sort, one that goes to the etymological roots of the word economy, that is, household management. The new economic story must be about real household management. It must be about the care of this planet, our home. And this story is already emerging. The new economy is already here. You are all bringing it to birth. That's why I'm so excited to be at this conference, because it seems to me that what must be done now is exactly what you two are doing, and all of you, which is bringing us all together. And broadly, before I close, it seems to me that the new economy will be circular. It will be powered by renewable energy, energy that is community-owned and locally generated. There's already technology for this in China. It will be local and decentralized. It will also be planetary. Of course, it has to be all humans have to understand that this is our home, this single planet. It will be organized by mutants, that is, by corporate hybrids. B Corps are my particular favorite, but there are other mutant forms, old and new. And it will honor the knowledge of indigenous people everywhere, most urgently right here in Australia. The genius for sustainable living of this continent's oldest inhabitants means that today their descendants embody the oldest continuous culture on the planet. Indigenous Australians have vital knowledge about how to live on this continent, and this must be recognized both formally and in practice. And last but not least, the new economy will enshrine the legal personhood of nature. Thank you very much.